Hey, good morning. I want to welcome the Rossmans back. I looked over across the room and I saw you guys here today. So glad you're back in the house. These are some home folks uh, who have ministry and, and Jesus. And well, you just got a beautiful family. We're glad you're here. And I want to squelch any rumors that it's, you know, the coincidence of the Rossmans coming back and what happened yesterday with the ball game. Uh, there's none of, there's no validity to that. So um, God bless you. I know it's hard. That was really hard, right? It was brutal. I changed the introduction to my message just because that was just so, you know, such a, such a big thing. And from the time I got to the parking lot to the time I came to the auditorium this morning to meet with the tech guys and, you know, and get everything set up and everything, it was, it's just, it, it's, it's like a sad thing you know it's a very difficult atmosphere and i understand that and you know why that is i'm not going to talk about why because now like 20 hands ago i'm saying yeah i'll tell you why right now and i know you probably called in on sports talk this morning and you've already expressed your opinion there'll be a lot of that over the days to come but why is it that we all feel that whether it's about sports whether it's about football whether it's, there's other things that we pull together, and it's just collective. You know, it's a collective thing. Uh, 9-11, I was stuck at Cocoa Beach and trying to get back. This was, I know some of you, first generation, wasn't even born. Uh, finally made it to Atlanta and was sitting there in, in, a, in a little, like, cafe inside the airport. And I remember a guy, we were watching a news report, and a guy looked at me from across you know, several tables and just nodded at me and just, and there was this camaraderie. There was something that connected us over a tragedy uh, like that. What is that? That is a word that is koinonia. It's a word koinonia, and it's used all throughout the New Testament. Paul used this word a lot and referring to relationships and particularly in this series uh, that we're looking at, which is a relationship between Paul and Philemon, and Onesimus, and the people that surrounded uh, this uh, incident that happened between them. And in verse 6 of the text that we've been looking at, which is the book of Philemon, Paul says, koinonia, koinonia. And this is a, this is a good word. This, this word means fellowship. And it was often used uh, in, the, in the New Testament. And here's what it means. The word literally refers to the idea of a mutual partnership where people share something in common. There is a connection. There was a connection last night. There was a connection this morning as everybody's talking about the same thing, at least if you're from Knoxville. Um, and some of you maybe played sports there. You graduated there. You're attending there now. You were in the marching band. And, or you're just, you're like me. You're a transplanted person and fan, and you've got all the gear, and there's orange, you know, shirts in your closet. And we feel that. We feel something together. That's koinonia. That's what that's talking about. Whether it's a celebration, whether it's a good thing, whether it's a not so good thing. And this word, it goes beyond just a contractual partnership between people. If that's all that glues you together, you know, then when the contract is over, when the deal... You see, I have a relationship with a mortgage company, right? I have a relationship with SunTrust Bank. Now, when that is over... I'm not going to go by there every now and then just to see them. I'm not going to just drop in and say, hey, made some peanut butter cookies and just wanted to say, hi, I miss you guys. No, I'm not going to miss them because our relationship is purely contractual. 
That's all it is. It's a deal. This is something deeper. This is something bigger and it's stronger. In this context, it's used to describe a strong community, a family that are bound together in life through Christ. And all the followers of Jesus are equal in, in this family, in the spirit of God's grace. And there's a guy whose name is Onesimus. And he is a part of this koinonia. And Paul is telling his friend Philemon he should be treated with grace and love and respect and forgiveness. Here's the big idea uh, in today's message. The family of God changes how we treat people. Or it should. <laughs> even, even those over whom we have authority. And when I say authority, specifically, you know, in this incident, uh, you've got Philemon, who literally owned Onesimus. It was a master-slave relationship. For you, it could be a boss, you know, an owner of a company and an employee, uh, which is, you know, a step away from ownership, but sometimes it feels like that, right? It could be a professor-student relationship. It could be brother-sister. It could be husband-wife. It could be neighbor-neighbor. There, there are these relationships where uh, there's an equality to it, but sometimes there is a position of authority, and you will abuse or exploit that, particularly if you feel offended or you feel like you've been wronged. And it's not just a position, but it's in the moment. You know, it's like when your mom said, go tell your brother to wash his hands, dinner's ready and come. All of a sudden, you've been given authority in that moment. Now, it's just temporary, and it's fading, but don't you remember how good it felt to go into the living room, you know, and to say, mama said, you need to wash your hands and get ready, and, and you just say it with authority, and you just kind of relish that. That's what this is talking about, this authority. So how are we going to apply that? When I've been offended or if I've offended someone and there is this positional kind of relationship somewhere in the midst of that, here's the application. Our fellowship, our koinonia with Christ and with one another changes. It changes how we handle handle interpersonal relationships it changes that in fact it changes it to the degree this should be one of the distinctive attributes about us in in the body of christ this should be one of the characteristics that people talk about now, i don't know what is said about everybody here you know as far as the, our relationship with jesus if you've been in a family where you're the only Christian or one of the few or in a community or maybe in your classroom or where you work, and people will, you know, assume these things about Christianity or about Jesus because of you, right? Because of me. You know, if I step into my family and I act a certain way, they go, yeah, those Christians, now yeah, they, they are, and there's this this big you know, assumption that is made in these sweeping stereotypes that are perpetuated, one of those should be, and wouldn't it be beautiful if this works out like this, 
where one of the things that happen when everybody thinks about, oh yeah, he's a follower of Jesus. Oh man, those people are so tenderhearted. They are so forgiving. They are the kindest people in our town. They are the, they are the sweetest people. No matter what happened, they just have this attitude. That would set us apart and become such an attractive thing. It would become an irresistible thing, I think, about the body of Christ. So Paul uses this word very purposefully, and we're going to just kind of build our thoughts today around that concept. So whatever we're talking about, maybe in your notes or just in the front of your mind, just see the word koinonia, just that fellowship, that camaraderie that we have. Now, Paul goes on to say, not only is Onesimus now not just um, in relationship with you, Philemon, because of his position or because of the past incidences or because maybe you bought him at some point and you own this guy because he's a slave, but he's now a brother in Christ. And so the whole dynamics of your relationship were just shifted and became something different. So Paul tells... Uh, Philemon, he, I mean, he, he really going out of bounds here because he says, I need you to welcome Onesimus. And in verse 16, he says, no longer as a slave, but better than a slave, as a dear brother. As a brother. Now, this would make sense to those of us who are in Christ. And we're kind of used to that language. And we refer to one another as brothers and sisters. Um, that was one of the things I liked when I first started going to church. Um, and being around Christians. And uh, they would call each other brother and sister. And there, there was this familiarity or this relationship set in the, in the context of a family. And that, that was very uh, attractive or compelling for me. Very relational. I, I really liked that. And that's an ancient thing uh, because we refer to that because, like it says in Hebrews 13, 1, we are connected to each other. We're connected to each other as family, as family. And we love each other not contractually because we're both under the new covenant or out of obligation because we're kind of in this same club called church. No, it's because there's this deep and strong and this intimate uh, relational aspect to, to who we are. The kindness that Philemon is to show Onesimus is completely different than what would have been expected in the social, kind of the pecking order, you know, in, in Roman society. Keep in mind that Onesimus is a runaway slave. He's a guy who packed up, you know, we don't know what he did to offend Philemon. Some people think that he stole stuff from him, that, you know, maybe he took some things, uh, maybe he hurt him in some way. We really don't know. You could speculate, but whatever he did was pretty bad. And so he packs up, middle of the night, you know, he loads his U-Haul camel and chariot or whatever, and he gets out of Dodge. You know, he just, he just leaves in the middle of the night, and nobody hears from him again. But he shows up, Paul happens to be in prison, but he meets Onesimus. They begin to develop a relationship. Onesimus comes to Christ. He becomes a follower of Jesus through his relationship with Paul. And Paul 
mentors him. He disciples him, and they build this relationship. And at some point, we don't know when, but one night, you know, Paul and Onesimus are talking, and Paul says, Onesimus, you've got to go back. You've got to make this right. You've got this gap. You've got this incident in your past, and there's this shadow, and that's just going to taint you. You know, you've got you've to deal with that. So you're going to go back. Now, here's what I'll do. I'll write you a letter. <laughs> and you know what Onesimus is thinking? I'm a runaway slave. You're a prisoner. You're a convict. You're, you're going to write me a letter, and that's going to make everything okay? Oh, you don't know Philemon. He goes, yeah, actually, I do. We're really good friends, and he's a good guy. He's a stand-up guy. He loves the Lord, too. So both of these men are going to be swept up in trying to make this past offense um, a right thing. And you've been to that part, right? You've got something in your past, a relationship, or someone that maybe you've been at odds with, or there was an incident that happened, there was something that you were greatly offended, or that they were offended by. And... If you just leave it there, there is the potential for that to continue to do harm and continue to project itself into your life and into your future. The enemy will use those past offenses to keep you in a dark place in part of your heart. What Jesus wants to do is to bring a deep healing and to cleanse that so that that can't grow up, so that it can't affect your life now and the days ahead. I don't know how you've been wounded. And I know it's one thing for me to stand here and to talk about that and for you to quietly let those voices run through. I call them the whispers. You know, to let those whispers go through your mind and your heart going, boy, if he only knew what my daddy did. If he only knew, you know, what happened to me. And, and I know we've all got stories. We've all been offended. And probably most of us have offended somebody else. And sometimes those are slight. You know, you think, well, it wasn't that big a deal. I just did this. And we, you know, I said, I was sorry. And then sometimes it's bigger, right? And it's something that just kind of lodges itself in our heart, in our soul. We got to deal with that. We got to get that right. So that's what Paul is talking about. And he, he gives Onesimus this letter. And he says, just show this to Philemon. And in the letter, he says, listen, I know he hurt you. I know he messed up. And I tell you what, whatever he took, and this is why some of us think maybe he stole something or he took some things, because Paul says, whatever happened, I will pay you back. So just that, talking about I'll pay you back, there was something to be paid back. So he says, I'll take care of the debt. You know, I'm, I'm going to make that good. Just tell me what he owes you, and, and I'm good for it. Uh, but repair this relationship. Don't let this continue. Receive him. And this was really different because he's a fugitive. Uh, and he's subject to severe punishment. And we talked last week about how, how oftentimes slavery in those days is different from our Western concept and our modern concept of what it is. It's just this horrible, just horrific thing. Uh, then sometimes um, it was almost like an, it was a temporary situation. Um, most people were out of slavery. By the time they were 30, 40 years old, uh, they had you know, worked their way out of that, that kind of an arrangement. Uh, and they were often treated like family members or employees, but they were still under authority. And that authority could be incredibly brutal. 
and even barbaric at times. You could be put to death. You could be punished in all kinds of ways. And Onesimus knows, he, he's really, really aware of that uh, right now. So to ask Philemon to forgive him, say, just don't do anything to him. That just doesn't, that's not justice. I mean, that's not right, you know. To ask him to do that and say to receive him and to release that, to let that debt go, is to confront not just their relationship, but the big picture, you know, the social and economic order. Uh, That's just going against that head on. It just wasn't done. It just, just didn't happen like that. But that's what Paul's asking. You know, all of us are born into communities that influence how we live, how we see things, who we are, uh, our opinions, our preferences uh, about all kinds of things. And some of you are from the north, some from the south or the east or the west, some from other countries. Uh, I met some some new friends this morning from West Tennessee, and there's like an immediate koinonia. You know, there's a, oh, yeah, I've been there. I know that. And uh, here's how mama used to make her cornbread. And, you know, I mean, we, we, you know, and you know that, right? And that's why people, like, I'm from Memphis. We're real snobby about barbecue, you know. We, we, We have an attitude about that. Some of you have an attitude about something from wherever you're from. You know, communities kind of shape us and make us, you know, specific in specific ways. And it really influences how we live. Your family, your friends, your clubs, your neighborhoods. You ever met somebody and they're a little different and your thought was, you're not from around here, are you? What made you say that or think that? Because their community shaped them a little differently than it shaped you. And that's kind of gone into making us who we are today. So the community shapes us, and we will reflect that upbringing. I think there's going to be a little part of that. No matter how uh, you change or adapt to where you live, there's always going to be some of that in you. Okay? Don't you feel that, that there's always that part of you that's connected My kids could always tell that when somebody from my hometown, especially from rural West Tennessee where I was raised, if somebody in my family called me, they could tell just by walking by me while I'm on the phone, oh, I know who he's talking to. Because I slip right back into, even though you think we live in the same state, there's a different accent. And I can just slip right back into that. And they they say, oh, we know he's talking to somebody from his family. Listen to his voice. You know, it's like, and it's still in you too. And then maybe it comes out in different ways. These communities that we're from do more than just influence those kind of, you know, little eccentric things. They tell us how to treat others. How to manage money, how to become successful, how do you find love. How to make, all these, these spinoffs will come from how you were raised and the communities that you were attached to. Now, here's where I'm going with that. When we become a part of God's family, he gives us new directions and this counter-cultural ethic to live by. And it's different. 
And depending on when you come to know Christ and in what context that was, it's going to be more of a stretch for you to kind of push past what you knew before that. That makes sense, right? And that's what we do. We become, when we step into Jesus, we become part of an original community with a brand new identity. You're somebody different and you're in a different place. It's a fresh community. It reflects Christ to the world. We do things differently. We say things differently. We believe differently. And it affects our life, not just while we're in this room on a Sunday morning when we all pretty much can figure out in in a short amount of time, you know, how to conform. When I started walking with Christ, and, and I've told some of you before, I can remember some of the first worship services and at that time, uh, you know, we used hymnals, and people would stand up and sit down, and stand up and sit down. And I can remember standing up, and we would be singing a song, and everybody would sit, and I'd go, oh, I guess I need to sit back down. And in a minute, they would stand back up, and the worship leader could just command this with one arm. He would go, and everybody knew what to do. They'd all stand up, you know, and everybody would get up. And I was, I was real curious about it, and I remember asking my friend, what are we doing you know, and then they would, they would do this and then do that. And on Sunday nights, we always closed worship service with the doxology. You know what I'm talking about? Praise God. From, and I liked it because there was something communal about this, this little church I'd started attending. And they had this relationship. And they would reach across and everybody would take hands. Sometimes I liked that. Sometimes I didn't like that. But they would do that, and it was just a part of that personality of that church. You can tell stories like that, right? Because you grew up in a certain place and said, oh, well, the what we did, and it was really sweet or affectionate, and, and you had those memories that kind of make us different. Well, in the same way, but in a bigger way, we are part of the body of Christ. And as that body, we just live differently than than others and I don't mean to separate as culturally like insiders and outsiders or you know make it a vertical thing like here we are and here's the rest of the world like that it's just it's just going to play out that we're going to live a little differently we're going to have different values and different ethics than the people around us the story of Philemon it isn't just about forgiveness although that's a huge component Uh, But it's about confronting ungodly cultural norms that Christians are a part of and changing those. Changing those. You know, when Christians first came on the scene, it was really, really common that if you had a child and you didn't want that child, there was a specific place you could take the baby and you just leave it there. To be eaten by wild animals, to starve to death, to just die of exposure to the elements. And nobody thought anything about it. Perfectly acceptable. The Christians began sneaking over to that place where they would dump these children. And they would snatch them up and save them and bring them back. And they would, they would raise these children, saving their lives. And it became such a prevalent thing to do that over time, as Christianity grew, the law was changed. And the culture was changed. And it became an illegal thing. And over time, an outrageous idea 
to leave a baby out in the woods in this rocky place and think, oh yeah, what happened to your child? Oh yeah, I took it out there. Oh yeah, I did that with my last one. I mean, you know, that was just, and it began, began to be a thing that was just unheard of. We think that slavery is abominable. And some of you are, you're attached to ministries and you're involved in things to stop the trafficking of human beings. You just find that, you just can't wrap your mind around how awful, how immoral that is. Whereas at one time it was perfectly acceptable. You see, we are the people that change our culture. Not just accept it and get swept up in it ourselves. But we're the ones who Jesus has made different. Now within that, the world said then, at the time this was written, and it says now, this is how you treat somebody under your authority. You treat them like a slave. Because that's all they deserve. That's their station in life. That's their role. This is your role. So that's the way you treat them. And Jesus comes along so different, so refreshingly, just unbelievably from a whole different, you know, view. And Jesus says, no, no, treat him like a dear brother. The world tells you, and I know some of this sounds cliche and you think, well, that's not true for me. But generally, I think you're going to have to, you have to agree that the world would say, you know, if you've got to lie and cheat a little bit in your business to get ahead, then that's part of the game. You got to cut some corners. Dan, you don't understand. This is a professional environment. This is the way it's done, et cetera, et cetera. If you have to, you know, your morality is not involved. This is business. Yeah, but that's business. You know, and we kind of cover that, and we're, 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 we're used to that. Jesus says, no, the truth will set you free. Even though it might not make you rich, you'll be free. The world says, you need to look out for yourself. Jesus says, no, 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 no. Look out for the good of others. Put yourself back in line and help others. The world says, hold on to power at all costs. And protect the people who look like you. Team up with those people. And Jesus said, no, give your power away and serve your neighbor even if they are very different from you. Because none of that really matters anymore. The world sees the action of getting someone back for what they've done to you as totally normal and acceptable. In fact, some of the best movies that you've seen, you know, with action that just make you feel good are movies about revenge, right? Like Taken or some of these where, oh, they're going to get it now. Oh, the bad guy's going to get it now. And, this, and, the, and the hero comes back and they're just fueled by vengeance. That's what the world teaches us. That's the way to, to go forward. Jesus didn't teach that. Paul didn't teach that. In Romans 12, Paul said this. Don't just pretend to love others. Really love them. Hate what is wrong. Hold tightly to what is good. Love each other with genuine affection and take delight in honoring each other. Never be lazy. Work hard. Serve the Lord enthusiastically. Rejoice in our confident hope. Be patient in trouble. Keep on praying. 
When God's people are in need, be ready to help them. Always be eager to practice hospitality. Listen to this. This was revolutionary. Bless those who persecute you. What? I thought we went to war with them. or We sabotaged them. He says, no, don't curse them. Pray that God will bless them. Be happy with those who are happy and weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with each other. Don't be too proud to enjoy the company of ordinary people. And don't think you know it all. Never pay back evil for evil. Do things in such a way that everyone can see that you're honorable. Do all that you can to live in peace with everyone. Listen to this. Dear friends, never take revenge. Leave that to the righteous anger of God. That's his job, not yours. For the scripture says, I'll take revenge. I'll pay them back, says the Lord. Instead, you're not going to like this. This is what he says. If your enemies, not your friends, not your family, but your enemies are hungry, feed them. If they're thirsty, give them something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals of shame on their heads. Now, if your motivation is, by doing this, I'm kind of getting revenge, I'm heaping burning coals on their heads, then you maybe miss the point just a little bit. Uh, but I've, I've, I've done that. I know, I understand. A common response that's often encouraged in our culture is that when you're offended, when you're wronged in some way, and you will be, is to just wait and get revenge. The first opportunity that comes along. Hey, when you hold on to an offense, it's, it's like holding a debt against someone. When one person is wronged by another, he or she begins to believe that a debt is owed me. This isn't over. Have you said that? This isn't over. He who laughs last. Last. I mean, you know, we've got all these cliches, all these things we say that give indication of, I'm just waiting my turn, and when that happens, I'm going to get you back. And we expect some kind of payment, some kind of karma, you know, something to happen uh, so that we feel like, ah, they got what was due them. Sometimes we, we, we want this revenge so badly that we begin to desire it. You'll begin to think about it. You'll begin to fantasize about it. You'll begin to seek it. And then you'll begin to carry it out. You'll find ways. And when you seek to correct a wrong like that that's been done to you, what we're doing is we're setting ourselves up as the judges. Listen to what Jesus says about this. This is in Matthew chapter 5. He says, now you've heard the law that says the punishment must match the injury. That just makes sense. Even to us, even to New Testament believers, we kind of think that. Eye for an eye, that sounds fair. Tooth for a tooth, I get it. But I say to you, Do not resist an evil person. If someone slaps you on the right cheek, offer the other cheek also. If you're sued in court and your shirt is taken from you, give your coat too. If a soldier demands that you carry his gear for a mile, carry it two miles. Give to those who ask and don't turn away from those who want to borrow. 
you've heard the law that says, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. In that way, you'll be acting as true children of your Father in heaven. For he gives his sunlight to both the evil and the good. He sends rain on the just and the unjust. And it's almost like Jesus says, and besides, if you love only those who love you, what's the big deal about that? That's easy. It's easy for me to love people like me. It's easy for me to love people who already love me. It's love and beyond that that taps into this supernatural power. The writer of Hebrews says that when we allow a root of bitterness to grow up between us and another person, it defiles not the other person, which is kind of what we'd like, right? It defiles us. Bitterness is a root. And if roots are nursed and watered and protected and fed and given attention, they increase in strength and in size. Now, last night I went out in the yard and I picked, um, I pulled up some nutsedge. Do you know what that is? It's this, it looks like a grass, but it's kind of a weed. I pulled it up and I wrapped it in um, a wet paper towel and then this morning promptly left it right there on the counter where I put it last night. But this is what it looks like. Uh, some of you have had it and it's just started invading my yard. So I asked Dr. Coffey, who for a long time was with the uh, ag campus at the university. I said, how can I, what is this stuff? I just called it nutgrass. He said, oh, that's nutsedge. He said, the only way you can, you can get it out is to reach down really low, close to the ground, and just gently pull it right out. He said, it'll come right out, roots and all. And so sometimes we'll be out in the yard talking on the phone, and we're, and we're pulling this nutsedge out one piece at a time. Now, there is a chemical you can get. The guy at Mayo said, oh, here's this bottle. It's about this big, and it's like $34. He goes, oh, and you got to make it sticky, so you got to get this bottle for 20 I thought I said, you know, it's going to be like $50 or $60 just, to, just for this one thing. He goes, yeah. He said, you can round up and kill your entire yard. <laughs> Oh, there's a solution, just annihilation, you know, just scorched earth. He said, well, you can grow a, a yard that's so thick and so healthy, it'll crowd it out and make it difficult. You can see where I'm headed, right? All of those applications mean the same thing. You're crowding out that, that root of bitterness that grows just like nutsedge. If not dealt with quickly... Roots can become so hard to pull up, and it just gets to be so much. My neighbor completely redid his yard. It was beautiful. Thick, green, Kentucky bluegrass and fescue. I mean, it was just this beautiful yard. But over a couple of years, this stuff invaded. And now, it's everywhere. It's just spread out everywhere. This is the same thing that happens in us with bitterness. It'll begin to affect you in all these other areas of your life and it'll just grow up and become more pervasive. The strength of your offense won't stay dormant. You're not going to lock it away and think, well, that's just this little thing and this, that's not, that doesn't affect the rest of my Christian life. It will. It's going to affect your prayer life, 
your relationships, your worship, everything about your life. And it'll continue to grow, and it'll get stronger, and it will defile you. Just like Nutsedge defiles your yard. That's why in Ephesians 4.31, Paul says, Put away all bitterness. Throw it way off. And wrath and anger and evil speaking. He says, don't talk like that anymore. Don't talk about them like that anymore. And in verse 32, he says, Instead, be kind to one another. Tenderhearted, forgiving. He said, isn't that the way God was with you? He forgave you that way. And you need to forgive other people in the same way that Jesus forgave you. You see, it's that kind of love that crowds out the offense. That's what pulls it up by the roots. So back to the story. When Philemon welcomed Onesimus as a brother now, he showed the whole world that the Jesus community treats others who are different because we're siblings with Christ. One reason why a lot of people don't understand the church or even hate the church, do you have relatives or do you have friends or co-workers or people on campus and you think, wow, they just really hate the church. Why is there you know, that animosity? I think it's because they've been hurt by the church at some point in their life. My first time I ever went to church, I had a really bad experience, and everything that I predicted would happen to me if I went, happened. And a friend had invited me, and I was immediately judged that day. And yeah, I had a lot to be judged about. No kidding. I get, I get that part. But I, didn't, I wasn't going to subject myself to it purposefully. But he said, oh no, it's not going to be like that, you know. Uh, it was like that. So I left. Didn't go back for six more months because I was hurt by the church. Some of you have had experiences uh, like that. Folks, forgiveness and redemption, and these are not just grandiose words. I mean, if we're serious about them, it's going to require sacrifice. I know. Yeah, you might get exploited, and it's going to take commitment. It's a theologian. His name's Peter Enns, and he says this. I thought it was a good statement. How the community treats you is a very powerful way of connecting or not connecting with Christ. Maybe some of you are not here, or you've got friends who will not show up because they got hurt at one time by people who said they were Christians. It's a big deal. It's how we treat others within the family of God. It really impacts folks, you know, their connections to God. So our exclusion or our mistreatment of people, it'll always reflect, reflect poorly on the community of Jesus. It's not an accurate, accurate depiction of who he is. So in a world that even now is full of class and status and all of that, Jesus becomes the great equalizer. To the church in Galatia, Paul said this. He said, there's neither Jew, nor Gentile, nor slave, nor free. There's neither male, there's not female. We're all one in Jesus. We're all one in Jesus. 
Now, that doesn't mean that we stop coming from certain ethnicities or we have these peculiarities because of the communities we were raised in. Some of that um, we can get teased about or some of it you, you become prideful about it, you know. It doesn't mean that you're not going to have certain roles in societies. I, I get that. Or that we stop being men and women. Or we stop being uh, young or old or all, all of those things. What Paul means is that in our conduct, in our attitudes, in our relationships, we began to see each other. And we began to see others in the light of Christ before we see them in any other light. What would your life look like? What would your relationships look like? What would our community begin to look like if we were genuinely people of forgiveness and tenderhearted? People who are gracious People who assumed the best instead of the worst about each other. What if the Lord, Holy Spirit, brings to your mind today a person or an organization or maybe an incident that happened and challenged you to begin to move toward reconciliation? instead of isolation and alienation. What if we began to live like that? What if? What would that do? What would our influence be in the community? So I'm going to leave that with you, and I want you to really just give that up to the Holy Spirit and say, Is there an offense that has grown up and has become a bitterness in me that you want to bring healing to and that you want to cover with the blood of Jesus? And I can receive that grace or I can extend that grace. And watch what happens as God pulls that root out and brings healing and beauty into that. Some of you have carried this since your childhood. Some of you had this against somebody who maybe is not even alive anymore. Maybe they died years ago or you're not even in relationship with them. But you've carried that. Listen, it's not hurting them anymore. It's only hurting. It's, it's only defiling you. It's time. It's time to release that. Now, week after next, I want to come back and I want to talk about how toxic offenses are and how the enemy uses those in our lives in in, in just amazingly destructive, incredibly powerful ways to hurt us. It's this side door. It's this trap that we fall into while maintaining our morality at all these other levels and for that to be like this false assurance that well I'm a pretty good guy or I'm a great Christian he knows if I can work through a place and a time where you were offended I can defeat you on all kinds of levels so we're going to talk about in a practical way 
how do we move forward? What do I do next? When you're asking me to forgive somebody or to seek forgiveness and, and how to begin to really live in that and to let go of offenses, what do I do next? We're going to talk about that. For today, let's just say, Holy Spirit, I'm going to give you my heart. I'm going to give you what happened. I'm going to give you what was said. I'm going to give you that person's face and that name and ask you to begin to let me see them in the light of Jesus and to begin moving toward reconciliation, forgiveness. Would you stand? Let's sing as we, as we pray and as we surrender that to the Lord.